Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. Once again, God's holy word. Hebrews 10, beginning verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So, dirt. Dirt is one of those things that can be the best or the worst. On the good side, dirt is the soil for life. From it sprouts flowers of every color, delicious raspberries, and sweet grasses for the cows and deer to graze upon. Soft black soil in your garden is like having money in the bank. Moreover, as the image of God, we are a fascinating mixture of spirit and dirt, the supernatural and the mundane. On the bad side, though, Dirt can ruin and kill. Mud stains the white dress. Soil in a cut infects and can set in gangrene. And in death, our bodies return to the ground from which they were taken. And to be tossed in the mire is abject defeat. In fact, one of the most insults and slams is to stomp something in the dust. And there is one particular sin that embodies such mud tromping, which Hebrews sets before us as a dire warning. Indeed, he flags this dreadful transgression to steer us away from it so that we might embrace more deeply the mercy of Christ by which we live. So, in the previous passage, we were just called to worship. With open access into the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Christ, we were encouraged to draw near for worship, to hold fast to our confession of hope, and to stir one another up in love and good deeds. This third exhortation, though, came also with something to avoid. We stir one another up to good and by not neglecting meeting together. We should not go, stop, we should, should not stop going to church. And yet the exact character of this neglecting was a touch blurry. Is forsaking worship just bad attendance? Is it church hopping, leaving the church, or something else? Well, this sin of neglecting worship is precisely what is drilled down upon in this next paragraph. And the author presents us with a full anatomy of this sin, to neglect church, to forsake worship. And he first clarifies by underlining that it is a sin, 
Forsaking church isn't an innocent mistake or a silly folly or an antisocial faux pas. Rather, as he says, if we go on sinning, if we persist in sin. So it is a sin, and it's an ongoing one. This is not a single mess-up or even a handful of flub-ups throughout the year. Instead, this sinning is habitual, persistent, a way of life. But most crucially, this sinning is performed deliberately, willfully, intentionally. And the use of this term stands out, for normally this willingness is applied to obedience as a high positive. That is, we are called to serve God willingly, freely, not out of compulsion. To obey from compulsion is to do so because you must, begrudgingly. You're pressured to, but you're not happy about it. And yet mature piety obeys the Lord out of love, desire, and joy. Willing service is doing it when no one's looking because you want to. Thus, deliberately or willfully sinning here has an ironic force. It's kind of like saying terrifically bad or wonderfully sinful. And such willful sinning, thus, is your free choice. It's your delight, your declared intention. It's saying, I want to do this sin, and no one can tell me otherwise. This is my sin, and I'm sticking to it. We... We do not yet have a full identification of what this sin is yet. But this is one of its first features that is done freely and boldly because we want to. Next, this sinful habit is put into practice after coming into the knowledge of the truth. And to know the truth is a New Testament idiom for conversion or for joining the church. This is hearing the gospel, professing faith, being baptized, and having your membership recorded in the church. Thus, this sin cannot be committed by non-believers or outsiders. It cannot be done accidentally or in ignorance. Instead, after confessing Christ, after professing loyalty to him, this person deliberately desires to turn back to sinful habits. This links back to verse 23, where we were supposed to hold fast to our confession of Christ, to be steadfast in the faith. But this post-membership sin has dropped their confession and given up the faith. Thus, as you can see, this sin is starting to get serious. To neglect church isn't so much about the saints But it's aimed at the Lord. It is walking away from Christ and the community wherein he reveals himself. And if this doesn't turn up the heat on this sin, the next line blows the thermostat off the wall. To willfully go back to this sin after professing the truth, then, as the author says, there no longer remains a sacrifice. This sin has no sacrifice that can erase it. There's no blood that can wash it away, which means there's no possibility for pardon. This sin lies beyond the reach of even Christ's sacrifice for sin. 
The atonement of Jesus cannot reach this transgression. And this is just another way of saying it's unforgivable. And with this, things are starting to get scary. Such a sin the blood of Christ cannot pay for. But the death of Christ was sufficient to pay for all the sins of world history. His blood purges clean every last transgression for the billions of his saints. And yet here, the infinite value of Christ's work hits a limit. This sin stain is resistant to the perfect detergent of Jesus. How can this be? Talk about scary And the fear keeps rolling in. No sacrifice remains for this willful sin, so the one thing that does remain is a fearful expectation of judgment. Without forgiveness, judgment is the only outcome. Now this reveals that atonement and judgment are exclusive options. It's either one or the other. Atonement saves you from judgment, so without blood atonement, Judgment is one's only fate. And this is no slight judgment. It's not a slap on the wrist or even a kick in the pants. Instead, it is full bore. Literally, this judgment is a jealous fire that consumes all. Here, the author combines two Old Testament ideas. One, Yahweh is a jealous God. And two, as jealous, Yahweh is a consuming fire. Such a jealous fire, then, discloses that this sin is directly against God and his very holiness. And it reaps the full weight of his burning wrath. Now, as you know, the gravity of a sin is revealed by the severity of its punishment. Fines and tickets are fitting for small infractions. But jail time and execution match serious felonies. Well, the max max temperature of God's burning fury is reserved for the gravest sin. Thus, this is no run-of-the-mill transgression. It is not your daily iniquities or even a major regrettable. Instead Instead, this jealous fire devours adversaries, which indicates that this sin turns one into a foe. Previously, such a person was a professed friend of God. They knew the gospel truth. They had confessed fealty to the Lord of the covenant. But now, by this willful sinning, they have switched sides. They've defected to the opposing team. They fly the flag of the evil one. They wear the enemy uniform. And so they're destined for the flames with no sacrificial option for escape or rescue. Again, the fear level is off the charts, but we are still not sure what this sin is. It's it's connected to neglecting worship. It is willful and post-conversion. But yet, what is this sin? Well, before he draws the curtain back, he stays on the punishment a bit longer. And here, a comparison is interjected. A piece of Mosaic justice is cited for us. Under the Mosaic law, if someone violated the law, they were executed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Now, this cites the witness threshold from Deuteronomy 17, and this burden of proof applied most particularly to capital offenses, hence they were put to death. And, of course, capital felonies are the worst sort of transgression. So, to flesh out the sin here, he compares it with a crime punishable by death under the law. Next, these public executions were to be carried out without mercy, which doesn't refer to the cruelty of the execution, but to its necessity. No mercy meant the sinner had to die. For in court, mercy is what commutes sentences. It reduces the penalty. It releases the criminal as forgiven. Therefore, no mercy was another way of the Old Testament to say there's no sacrifice for pardon for these types of sins. No mercy spells that there was no way to stay alive, but the death is carved in stone. Likewise, the disposition of the sinner was irrelevant in these cases. He might be sorry, um, but he would still have to die. The criminal might repent and decry how wretched he is, but it matters not. The sword still had to fall. Also, the inevitable judgment like this reveals the character of justice. Some offenses, as you know, are so grave, so heinous, it's not really proper for justice to show mercy. It's like a serial murderer and pedophile. For such gross acts, it's just not right to pardon them. So justice had to be satisfied under Moses for these capital offenses. And this tenet of Old Testament justice is now uh, compared to this present willful sin at hand. But the comparison goes from the lesser to the greater. Capital crimes deserved execution without mercy under the law. So then how much worse ought to be the punishment for this deliberate sin? The penalty this sin earns is more severe than being put to death. And if the punishment is worse, then the sin is more heinous. But what transgressions are worse than Old Testament capital crimes? Well, some of the more, more regular felonies of the Old Testament were murder, rape, and adultery. But what evil or more, what is more evil than murder or rape? Well, these crimes are aimed mainly at other humans. And the identity of the victim is a measure of heinousness. A crime against an animal is not as bad as one against a human. Felonies involving children are more depraved than those with adults. And who is more precious than a human baby? Well, God is. Yes, these sins pointed exclusively at the Lord and so are much more debased and obscene. And with this, the, the author finally unwraps for us what this sin is. In verse 29, he undresses the willful sin with all its shame. Who is this sinner? Well, he's a three-pieced puzzle. And the first piece 
it is he who trampled, literally, the Son of God. This is the abject disdain of dirt. It is to take something precious and valuable, to drop it in the mire, and then jump on it like a hammer against an anvil. And what is stomped in the mud here? The very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God come in the flesh. He is the cherished Jesus, the incomparably valuable Christ. Imagine a wife tromping on her diamond wedding band in the dust, or a king trashing in the compost pile his ruby-encrusted crown. Such scorn makes you gasp in disbelief. No, he didn't. No one would trample on something so expensive and, and glorious. But this person tramples the Son of God into the muck. He grinds Jesus into the manure pile. And this mud stomping of Jesus rejects him as worthless. It dishonors him as useless. It condemns him as evil. You can see here how knowledge is key. This person knows who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, but then he denies him and calls Jesus an anti-Messiah. This man understands that Christ is righteous, but then labels him as corrupt ungodliness. This sin is aware that Jesus is God, but then charges him as being demonic. There's no apathy here, no disinterest, no lazy carelessness. But this is fervent disrespect, contempt, and hatred. This person says, I will show you what I think of the Son of God, and then he crushes a snail under his boot on the sidewalk, reveling in the pomp and the crunch. But there's more pieces to this sinner. The second piece is that he regards as profane the blood of the covenant. Now, of course, covenantal blood is holy to God, and the Lord prizes the holy above all else. In the Old Testament, to profane the holy was a depraved evil against Yahweh's personal holiness. And here, this blood of the covenant is Christ's shed blood to inaugurate the new covenant and to make forever atonement for our sins. This derision, then, is more hostile to the office and work of Jesus. To tromp on the Son assaults his person. To call his holy blood profane spits on his redeeming labors. This asserts that Christ's death was worthless and ineffective. More so, it characterizes his loving sacrifice as evil, immoral, even shameful. This further denounces Jesus' blood as unneeded. This sinner says, I don't need Christ's death. His blood does nothing for me. No atonement needed, especially not from the gross blood of Christ. The touch of Jesus' blood defiles and ruins you, says the sinner. It imparts evil and nothing good. Yes, this is the profaning of the holy blood of Christ by which we are sanctified. And the third and final piece of the sinner is to insult or revile the spirit of grace. Now, this outraging the spirit 
contains two poisons. One is arrogance, and the other is maligning. This is to mock with pride. It puffs up its chest as superior and better in order to denounce and scoff as at the other as inferior and bad. This same reviling was done to Christ by the priest and the crowds as he hung upon the cross. Yet this arrogant derision is pointed at the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit, as you know, is the agent of creation. He's the great applier of our salvation. The Spirit inspired the prophets of old. He is the witness of God's infallible truth. It was through the Spirit that Jesus offered up his blood, and by the Spirit, the benefits of Christ are brought into our hearts. Indeed, the Spirit here is the one of grace. And the gracious Spirit is the gift giver. He is our nourisher and sustainer. Tenderness, patience, sympathy from God is administered to us by the Spirit. Hence, to revile the gracious Spirit is to bite the hand that feeds you. It slanders him who is generous and scorns him who showed you love. This sin repays good, the good of the Spirit, with evil. The Spirit hands us freely the eternal riches of Jesus. But to revile the Spirit is to poke him in the eye and hit below the belt. The level of arrogance, of arrogant ingratitude here almost strains our imagination. But with these three ugly pieces put together, the true name of this willful sin finally becomes clear. This is idolatrous apostasy. At one point, such a sinner had professed faith in the gospel, been baptized and joined the visible church. They were well catechized in the doctrines of grace and the cross. But then, with free desire, they forsook the church. They joyfully spit on the worship with loud voice, boast that the Son of God is fake and dishonorable. That Christ's blood holds no redeeming power, but is a despicable evil. And that the spirit of grace is hateful and wicked. Therefore, this willful sin is not something you, commit, you can commit accidentally. It cannot remain hidden in your subconscious. Likewise, this sin is not reached in a moment of crisis, out of fear, as Peter did. Out of danger, Peter denied Jesus, but he did not commit this apostasy, and so Peter was forgiven. Also, in times of alluring temptation to dabble in idolatry, when Israel fell practice or fell into idolatrous practice over and over again, this did not qualify as full-blown apostasy. The Lord forgave those repentant Israelites an all untold number of times. Ignorance disqualifies you from this sin. Good intentions, gone astray, seasons of weakness, even straying times of pathetic faith, these are not this sin. Instead, this is a clear-minded, full-desire denouncing that Jesus is God. 
profaning his sacrificial blood and reviling the grace of the Spirit. It is a transgression against God and not man. And it attacks particularly Jesus' redemptive redemption in favor of some other God. And this is why justice is so severe against it. Thus, we get another Old Testament citation from Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, the Lord will judge his people. This asserts the certainty of judgment against this idolatrous apostasy, and that God himself punishes it. The Lord alone performing vengeance means that he does it and not the church. It is not within our jurisdiction to execute punishment for this apostasy. Sure, the church will excommunicate, but this is a verbal declaration. And yet the condemnation and the penalty are the work of God and not humans. Also, this judgment will happen, and there's no escape. The Lord will surely judge his people who forsake and stomp Jesus in the dirt. Hence, these two quotes make it clear that we as the church are not a theocracy. We do not have the power of the sword. This also reveals that the punishment is not in this life, but in the next. If punishment for apostasy is worse than capital punishment, then it must be the condemnation in hell, precisely where the fire of God's jealousy burns. Lastly, the author adds, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When such a deliberate sin against the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is committed, this puts one completely under the control of God. If you trample the Son of God into the mire as worthlessness, what do you think the Holy Father is going to do? To poke Jesus... The apple of the father's eye, this is to punch the father. And for such demonic hatred of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no other judicial outcome than jealous wrath without mercy. And yet, the horrors of this sin and its terrifying punishment should not cause you to despair. For one, this warning is good for us. Note that in verse 26, the author includes himself. He says, if we persist in sinning willfully. Here, the inspired writer applies the warning to himself. Gross and depraved sins like this one aren't pleasant to consider, but they are a fact of life. And a mature faith does not bury its head in naive innocence. Instead, it's good for our faith to be frankly aware of the evils that lurk. If you are ignorant of the danger, how can you guard against it? But being well-informed, our faith is effectively vigilant. Furthermore, the complex and explicit nature of this sin betrays the fact that it is deliberate and unique. This is a very narrow class of sin that has no forgiveness, which emphasizes how Christ's blood covers every other type of sin. 
Think of all the notorious sinners forgiven in Scripture. Adam's treason was forgiven. So also was David's rape and murder. Manasseh's child sacrifice. Moses' sacrilege. Saul's jealousy. Peter's denial. And even the cruelty of those who crucified Jesus. As he prayed, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus calls us to forgive one another 70 times 7, modeled on the continuous mercy of God. In Lamentations 3, right in the middle of God's fiery wrath upon Jerusalem, the prophet confessed that God's mercy is new every morning. Hence, this specific and grave sin of idolatrous apostasy does not restrict the power of Christ's atoning blood, but it amplifies it. The only sin that Jesus won't forgive is you trampling him and his forgiveness in the dust. How could it be otherwise? Yet in every other case, you, beloved, have the rich and abundant forgiveness of sin. Jesus' love forgives you 70 times 70 times 7 to the 7th power. Therefore, this solemn warning drives us to the ample mercy of the Son, to the unending grace of the Spirit. It woos us to humble confession and repentance, knowing the lavish and generous pardon of Christ. Thus, may we be on guard against this apostasy. May our steadfastness be found in our constant resting alone in the blood of Christ for salvation and for life here and forever. And may we be faithful in worship so that we are fed by the truth and grace of the Spirit to the praise of the infinite mercy of Christ. Indeed, this warning is meant to drive us to the mercy of Christ to show how infinite and perfect it is. Amen. Let us pray.